Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Guy Perlmuter, founder of Grids Capital, a firm that does both fund investing and direct investing into deep tech. Their portfolio to date includes a number of funds, as well as direct investments into companies such as Desktop Metal, Recursion Pharmaceuticals, Instrumental, Esper, and Momenta Space. Guy's background is quite extensive in both electrical and computer engineering, as well as risk management. He's also the author of the acclaimed book, Present Future, Business Science and the Deep Tech Revolution. We had a fantastic conversation covering deep tech, what he looks for in deep tech managers, and his bear and bull case on the venture capital industry. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week of Venture Unlock is brought to you by Passer. Raising a fund is hard enough without the additional friction of the complex subscription agreement process that makes it so difficult for investors to easily sign up. Enter Passer, which automates the fund closing process. It takes any subscription agreement and builds a fully digital custom workflow where your investors only see the questions that matter to them. It's so simple that investors can now sign up for private funds in less than five minutes. Passthrough also makes it easy for fund managers and legal counsel to manage and track the entire process. To move into the next generation of digital fund closing, head over to passthrough.com forward slash Samir to learn more. Guy, I'm so excited to have you back on the show and in a slightly different capacity than our LP roundtable. This time you're coming on as an LP solo capitalist. So excited to have you. And this will be a really fun conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Samir. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So let's start from the top. And I I really want to get into your background, which I think is really interesting because you've taken on so many roles. You're a computer engineer. You have a lot of experience on the uh, the risk side as well in the financial markets, particularly on the alternative side. But what I didn't know until recently is you have been investing in this intersection between technology and science really for 20 years. And a lot of us think of deep tech as something very new. So tell us a little bit about the background, how you got to the point right now of starting Grids Capital in 2015. Absolutely. So I'm a computer engineer by training, and I have a master's in electrical engineering, specifically in AI. I did my master's in computer vision, and I'm pretty sure that my two-year thesis now can be summarized by four lines of code uh, out there. But it was, you know, the mid-1990s. The field was still, you know, mostly academic. But I had this very strong feeling that intelligent techniques, you know, neural networks, genetic algorithms, fuzzy logic, those were at some point going to be mainstream. I actually was going to do a PhD. I won uh, an award, a Young Scientist Award. It's a very prestigious award uh, in Brazil for for uh, some work I did. An invention, actually, uh, I made that allowed dot matrix printers to print in Braille. And that kind of gave me a scholarship to pursue a PhD. But before actually committing to that, I thought, you know, I should work for a couple of years you know, I have time, maybe this is not the right path for me. And of course, I didn't find a job in technology because all the jobs in technology were not related to, you know, AI 
or machine learning or the kind of stuff that I really enjoyed. So long story short, I started a career in the financial markets because I figured that this is always going to be useful knowledge for me, right? To understand how markets work, uh, stocks, bonds, commodities, hedge funds, real estate, private equity, that made sense. So I started my career as a risk manager uh, back in the mid-1990s, expecting to be you know, uh, in this role for two or three years, and then AI was going to kick in and I was going to be able to, to, to kind of join a company or start a company in that space. Famous last words, right? I ended up being a, a risk manager and an asset allocator for 20 years. And uh, basically, that was, I think, a very important part of my professional insight, if you will, on how I could merge my academic background and my professional background to build a, a grids capital. So in late 2000, I had uh, a friend who was actually, had, he had finished his doctorate degree and I knew him from, we enrolled in our grad, in graduate school together. He pursued his PhD. I decided to start working, but we never lost touch. And eventually, he decided to start a company uh, in the optoelectronics space. He needed an angel investor, and I understood what he was doing. The world at that time was switching from you know, the copper wire infrastructure to the optical fiber infrastructure. I did a small I wrote a small check, really small, but you know, it was like my debut as an angel. And at the time, there was no deep tech. Uh, or hard tech, a real cluster of the market. It was just more technically oriented stuff. That's it. Maybe emerging tech. So I did that and that one went well. And then I got excited and I did a couple of more. And one of them went, okay. The other one was a disaster. So I started to kind of see how the risk management uh, techniques that I was applying to huge portfolios at my uh, day job would be very useful for me in my angel investment career. Cut to 2015, uh, I had already been doing you know, angel investing at that point for 15 years on and off. In 2009, I guess, I started to do some LP investing in the sense that I became an LP in a number of, of deep tech funds because uh, I was getting very confident that this was something that was coming of age. That was something that was very clear for me uh, back in 2010. And I had some liquidity already because uh, I was a partner at the bank that got sold. So I had some liquidity to start kind of uh, investing. And, and finally, to, to, to wrap up this answer, uh, in 2015, I, I decided that, you know, uh, deep tech was going to blow up and that I had to take the opportunity because there were not many investors or many people from the finance world that had a deeply technical background. And I felt that this would give me an edge and that I should try to kind of build upon that because I'm a very big believer on you know, optimal allocation. And I thought that this would be an optimal allocation for me in terms of human capital. So I decided to start Grids Capital, uh, which would only do, and that's of course the case, deep tech investments.
So you've had such an interesting background across so many different capacities, angel investor. You started acting as an LP in, in various deep tech funds, the financial services background, and obviously the, uh, the computer engineering and just overall engineering background that you've had as an, both an electrical engineer as well. When you started Grids in 2015, I think one thing that was pretty clear to me at the time was that there was something to this deep tech. But for a lot of people, deep tech was this amorphous term that was not well understood. And so what I'd love to understand is, you know, as part of your learning journey as an LP in a number of funds, tracking this space, and I know you've written a book, what were the main points that you highlighted as you were going out and raising your first fund that really spoke to the opportunity in deep tech? Back in the day, right, and it it feels like, you know, a, a decade ago, but it was just like... Uh, five years ago, six years ago, the idea of venture capital to most of my uh, LPs, my future LPs, uh, was very much connected to the idea of investing in a soft tech company, right? Uh, you do some SaaS investing, enterprise software, B2C, e-commerce, social media, app, gaming. The whole idea, the whole concept behind deep tech felt academic, felt research-oriented, felt a little too far down the road for them. And and most of my time was spent uh, trying to uh, tell them, you know, about the idea that you don't go where the puck is, you go where the puck is going, right? That's the old the old saying, you, you, you don't chase the puck for where it is. Right now, you want to see where it's heading. And I was telling people that we were living... And we are living uh, a very interesting period where things that were academic uh, were quickly becoming mainstream, where you could see that the time it took for a patent to become a product was shortening uh, from decades to years and uh, and now to a, a few months, maybe 18 to 24 months, and that Above all, the economy as a whole was gearing up towards a new leap into productivity, into efficiency, into uh, economies of scale. And the one single thesis that kind of brought all these aspects together was deep tech. And one advantage that I had during this race was that because I had been in the financial markets doing asset allocation and investing people's money for a long time, I kind of had uh, established a reputation, a network, uh, and people kind of felt that there was a lot of interesting evidence, if you will, around this thesis uh, that would acknowledge uh, an allocation. So this was my uh, my initial fundraising effort back in uh, 15, 16. And I think some of that myth of you're investing in science projects, or at least the underlying fund managers are investing in companies that may not have a commercial product for five or 10 years, and so many have, things have to go right, is still something that a lot of people do believe to be the case. Now, I think it's starting to change, as we've seen certain firms like Lux and Data Collective and Root and 11.2, and I'm sure there's many, many others that are really focusing on these companies that seem to commercialize much, much quicker. 
with far less capital than what people would normally associate with those type of companies. You're a former risk manager and you understand risk. There is some inherent risk investing in funds that are investing in these type of companies that aren't a traditional SaaS company where you can look at very definable and predictable measurables and KPIs. What are the considerations that you underwrite to that help you mitigate risk when you are looking at an individual manager that's doing deep tech investing? That's a, a, a fantastic question and goes to the heart of our process and our thesis, right? So here are a couple of, I think, myths that people still feel are, are, are real, but of course they're not, right? The first one is that when you look at a company, at a, a founder uh, that is coming to raise their pre-seed or their seed round, you feel like this is day zero for that technology. And it rarely is. Normally, deep tech companies, when they're starting to raise, they are raising on the back of years of research, of doctorate degrees, or of a postdoctorate work, or or, or research in, in, in science, or, or federal institutions that uh, have a huge uh, space allocated to for, for grants and for uh, scholarships and for programs that are chasing new and advanced technologies in many spaces. And we can talk about those spaces uh, uh, later. So that's the first myth. And the second myth is that there is a similar challenge when you're choosing a soft tech company and a deep tech company and the skills are interchangeable, which I, I don't ascribe to. I think it's a very different space and you need very different skills. So the way, uh, and, and, and now you mentioned that, you know, being a risk manager, it would be almost paradoxical for me to go into deep technologies, which were supposed to be even riskier than soft technologies. And and actually, I would I would state it's just the opposite. In my mind, deep tech is less risky than soft tech because the barrier of entry alone for a deep tech company is already a huge advantage for the investor because the chance of that company being undercut or being simply copied by a, a competitor or being uh, among 20 or 30 other companies that do a similar thing, that's a very unlikely scenario. And so for me, this, this is very interesting in terms of, 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 of risk return. The second thing is that, that those companies, the deep tech companies, they usually are born with some level of protection because they usually have some sort of intellectual property or patent around their core technology. And sure, there, there are a ton of risks but you know where you are heading. You know, they have, typically they have a, a, a flight plan and they say, okay, if we reach this milestone, we'll, we'll raise a seed. If we reach this other milestone, we will raise an A and so on and so forth. So you kind of know where your downside is at every single moment in time. It's not like a software company where, okay, when we get to 25 million users, will be able to make this work. But until then, we have to pour money into that. So as a risk manager, those for me were, were critically important aspects of doing deep technology. And the other thing that, that I thought that would make a lot of sense, and actually this was something that I spent a lot of time on, was that I should build a blended model for my investment thesis. Instead of 
making a pure and simple fund of funds where I was already lucky enough to have the network and the access for, you know, fantastic GPs that uh, had already been doing great work in the deep tech world. I thought that I had a very interesting opportunity of, of changing the shape of the return distribution for my portfolio. Because as I looked into my uh, portfolio or my potential portfolio and evaluated some of the companies that were in there, I got very much into the mindset that if I saved about a third or a little more than a third of my portfolio to do direct investments, to do co-investments uh, with my GPs in later stage rounds, because the whole thesis was let's allocate into early stage managers that will be able to attract fantastic entrepreneurs in the deep tech world. And of course, at some point in time, the companies that are working will need more money and those funds are going to be tapped out. So then we would come in. And this changed a little bit for the better uh, over the years, but the the core uh, motivation has been the same. And I think this has been uh, a, a great mitigator of, of the risk that we uh, are running in our portfolios. Thanks for going through that, because I, I do think that clears up a lot of the, the myths that often are permeated through the industry. And and certainly it's something that I've even thought about over the years, and I've seen the the changes of so many things that once were very difficult, but you're seeing the cost of actually launching those things be a, a, a step function uh, below where they were. And space is a great example of another area where things are much, much cheaper. And we've seen companies like Varda, for example, launch and do great things with fairly little capital so far. As you think about then the GPs that you have worked with, what are the main characteristics that you've observed that make somebody a good deep tech investor? There's no faking it in the deep tech world. It's not an area where you can just uh, try to get a general understanding of what the specific company you're looking at is doing. You either know your stuff or you know people that know that stuff or the chances are chances are that you're not going to, to build great investments. So one common thread among some of the GPs that we work with, uh, you know, Lux, Section 32, Root, Ubiquity, E14, uh, 11.2, and these are some of the GPs we are working with. One common thread that, that connects all these folks is that if they have a deep bench or they have deep connections in the scientific community. So... They have either analysts that, ha that have PhD diplomas in specific areas, and they will be able to talk with founders that are doing some advanced biochemistry or robotics or uh, mechanical engineering with a shared vocabulary, a shared mindset, or they'll be able to outsource, quote unquote, this part of the diligence to people that they have established connections in the, in the academic world or in research centers. So this is, for me, kind of a non-starter. If you are trying to raise or trying to manage a deep tech fund and you don't have the technical chops and you don't have insertion in the community and you don't have a history in, and you don't need to know everything about everything, right? That's impossible. But if you don't have a clear edge in terms of knowledge or domain of that knowledge, 
for being a, so that you are able to criticize and evaluate, that's a non-starter. And, and at the end of the day, if you use this rule of thumb, the process of selection becomes, becomes quite simple because there are not that many uh, GPs out there with those uh, skills to choose from. If we play this out and we ascribe to what we believe is going to be a movement toward more deep tech across so many different verticals and applications, right now you're correct. There's very few GPs that have the technical chops to be able to do this at, as a core thesis, but it would stand to reason as we see growth in that part of the industry, you'll see more GPs. As you think about comparative edges and moats, what are some things as the market becomes more competitive for deals that GPs can do to really future-proof themselves and retain this position that they have in getting in front of the best companies consistently and winning those companies? So there's no asset class in the world that ascribes so much value to the halo effect as venture capital. We're probably the asset class where the halo effect plays the strongest part out of every other one, because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If, if, if GPX had a great exit, then we should try to talk to him because there or her, because there's a chance that he or she will be able to do that again with us. And with that dynamic, chances are that GPX will be able to attract some great entrepreneurs. So another myth in our space that I think in the deep tech is playing out very much to what I expected is that you can think of every GP as having a certain gravity well around it, right? And as entrepreneurs start doing their homework and trying to figure out who should I talk to, who knows about inflammatory diseases diagnostics, who are the GPs that know that? That's already a big selective process, and you're absolutely right. In the future, instead of three names, they may find five or six names. But here's the thing. Even within those names, there will be pecking order. They will do something about, okay, we should talk first with this one, and then with that one, and finally with this one, and we'll see which one is a better fit for us. So I feel that First and foremost, the world will not all of a sudden start to produce five or 10x more PhDs or more subject matter experts in those fields. Secondly, I think because technology is accelerating, which is a phenomenon that we are, you know, we should be used to at this point in, in history because it's been happening for literally centuries you will have to have more of a uh, foundation laid out so that you can perform as an investor. So my take is that there will be more funds for you to choose from because inevitably there will be spin-offs, there will be people leaving some of those shops to start their own, their own firms, and that's a natural and welcome dynamic into the market. But very much like we saw in many other industries, the who's who of this industry is not a list that changes overnight, right? You need to prove yourself, and this is not something that you do in a couple of quarters. You have to 
you know, walk the walk, you have to perform consistently and have to build on top of your earlier successes. So I think this is going to be a slow bake. And I think that for those who are already well-established, this is going to be actually an opportunity to strengthen their, their positions. What's really interesting, though, is is thinking about the the growth of this market, which, you know, as you mentioned, we do expect folks like Lux and Data Collective to create an even more stronghold as they've already established brand. They've done this for a long time with great returns. But the other thing that I wanted to maybe touch on is that there's probably PhDs listening to this podcast thinking, I have great technical knowledge. I really have great access to the community. I can raise a fund, but then starting a fund, investing capital is a very different skill set than identifying and evaluating a company from a technical perspective. How do you weigh those things in terms of when you're looking at a brand new manager, prior investing chops versus their overall technical acumen and the network they build within the deep tech sector? It's a great question, and it 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 is basically at this point uh, human nature that is going to tell me how uh, or if we're going to even engage with that particular uh, manager or founder, depending on the case. Because one of the things that is relatively easy in a deep tech investment, if you have the technical chops, is to do your first dive and understand if that technology has legs, right? If it's something that is economically doable, if there's a place in the market for it, and if the underlying intellectual property or the underlying chemistry or physics or biology of the process makes sense. And this is something that if you as a deep tech manager does do not have the doesn't have the skill set to evaluate, you have to have a network that is going to be able to help you out and to be able to kind of guide you through that process. And this is this is definitely not the hard part, at least not in my opinion. And again, I think my background and my network plays out a huge role in that. But to your point, it gets trickier when you start to dive into non-objective territory, which is exactly what your the core of your question uh, alludes to. So is that particular PhD in astrophysics going to be a phenomenal portfolio manager in airspace? Are those things kind of naturally convertible between themselves? And I can tell you that they're not. And I would go as far as to say they usually are not. Because as, you know, you have probably experienced, and most of our listeners have already experienced, uh, there seems to be a very unique set of skills that will make a person deeply technical, deeply knowledgeable of a specific theme. And those skills, they usually do not merge well with the skills that you, ex you would expect from a portfolio manager or an entrepreneur, Sa sales skills, business development, project management, marketing, those are complementary, if you will, skill sets. So for me, there are two things. There's, of course, the angle of who is a great hard tech or deep tech GP able to choose from the best entrepreneurs, and there's the other thing of who is a great entrepreneur who can actually not only perform a, a unique technical achievement, but also build a business on top of that. 
And for both of those uh, elements in my portfolio, the GPs and entrepreneurs, there's one critical question that, that has to be asked, which is once the big technical hurdles are out of the way, are you willing to relinquish power, right? And I mean relinquish power in the sense that you are founding a company, you are the CEO, but at some point, your technical skills are going to be less important than the business skills needed to make that particular technology into a product or service or a business. And and of course, everybody will say, yes, of course, I'll, I will be more than happy to kind of unload to leave this chair and, and bring something on board. And with time, you can smell if this is something that they're just saying because they know this is what you want to hear, uh, or if it's something that you can see as legitimate because there is something about being deeply technical that almost locks you into this world of numbers and and, and motherboards and, and, and chemical elements and laboratories and that you would welcome someone to kind of unload the burden of talking to customers or talking to potential clients or raising money so that you can just stick to your knitting and do your thing. So I think it's a very valid point, but one that is only uh, achievable, this, this detection, if you will, is only achievable through, I think, experience and through an extensive list of questions and interactions with the, uh, with the managers and the entrepreneurs. What struck me during this conversation, and, and I always think about when entrepreneurs are first starting off, they don't often have all of the skills. Maybe they have a technical insight, and then they have effectively their board of directors, which is their advisors, their VCs. And historically, within the VC space, most LPs have the archetype of passive capital. You are very clearly somebody that spent a lot of time building networks, building experience and domain expertise. What is your view on what type of LP you want to be? And are there things that you are doing to add value to your GPs that help them come up the learning curve, whether it's technically or from a portfolio management standpoint? I like to think so. The first thing is that when you approach uh, a GP or when you become an LP, you kind of have to know your role, right? You are you're basically climbing on a bus uh, alongside many other passengers, and it's not your responsibility to drive the bus. And we make it very clear we are constructive LPs in the sense that we want to be part of their journey, but it's their journey, right? We are LPs and we're happy to help. So the great GPs, they will extract the best of their LP base to make themselves better. They will use the network that the LP base will bring to them. They'll, they'll use their, the backgrounds and former jobs that the LP base had. They'll, they'll, they'll kind of leverage that and become better GPs. And this is through with, you know, I guess, most of the best GPs out there. The uniqueness of the role that I think grids play uh, when we become an LP in a deep tech fund, is that we are kind of like Switzerland in the sense that we are not competing for the same deals. We're, we don't want to poach an entrepreneur or do a pre-seed before everyone else or be in the board of a specific company. We are as friendly as they are, as they come, right? We don't want board seats. We don't want ownership. We want to be part of a successful story. 
And one of the things that we have done time and time again is we recognize in different portfolios, companies that would make a ton of sense to get connected. And because of the way the market is structured, venture is in general a pretty open environment where people exchange information. But once the deal is locked in and people have ownership, then they will see you in the next round, right? The journey between the C to the A is not one where you're going to get a lot of visits uh, from competitors, right? You want to keep that treasure of a company uh, you know, shielded from competition until the next round where the valuation has a step up and then you welcome your peers to, to, to co-invest. So one thing that we have that I think is quite unique, it's because we only do deep tech and because we invest in a number of those portfolios and we always, always, always go for the double opt-in, we will look into intros that we feel that make sense and we will ask people, listen, if you were to know someone with X, Y, and Z characteristic, would that make sense for your business? Yes, 100%. Then we go back to the other party and say, if you were to know someone with those characteristics, would that make sense? Yes. And I can tell you that more than once, I have introduced companies from Portfolio A to GPB, and GPB co-invested in Portfolio in, in that specific company. And this connection became something that was mutual beneficial. So everybody, I think, got better from this introduction. So as an LP, as someone who's been in this industry for a long time and someone with, with a deep interest in making things work, I think that GPs recognize that. And we have been you know, fortunate enough to be able to uh, make some very interesting intros, and more importantly, to help out both founders and GPs in that journey. That's great. And, and you know, I talked to many managers, and they said there's two types of LPs. Typically, one is large passive pools of capital that can be fairly durable in nature, and the other are smaller LPs that can be value-add. If you can combine the value-add plus the durability, those are the type of LPs the best GPs want to work with consistently. And so it sounds that is very much your methodology, but doing it in a way where you're not intrusive to their day-to-day -day processes, of course, just like the best VCs are not like that to their underlying portfolio companies. That's absolutely right. And at some point, you have to know, and, and this is, again, this is always a learning experience, right? Every single day, every single week, you're learning uh, how the dynamic of EGP fits to your own process. Sometimes it's a fantastic fit, and things just just flow uh, naturally. Sometimes it, it it takes a little bit of an adjustment and sometimes it's not a perfect fit and that's okay. But the underlying theme, and this is how we approach every single investment, is we genuinely feel that our approach of allocating to both deep tech GPs and doing some co-investments will yield a very interesting risk return profile to our LPs because, you know, I only have a business as long as I'm performing for my own LP. So this is the end game. This is where I really want to excel. I want to make sure that every single LP that invested with grids knows what they're getting. They're getting exposure to phenomenal GPs who are able to attract the best entrepreneurs out there or some of the best entrepreneurs out there. They're getting a very balanced 
portfolio in the sense that we don't allocate into deep tech in the sector, but into the whole of deep tech, we do a broad allocation and that's very deliberate. And finally, that these LPs, they have an insight on where the world is heading. You know, this is a very important theme for me. That's that's the genesis of my book, right? Where are we heading? How is are all those trends coming together to shape our future? And if you have a front row seat into those trends, I think you are better off, not only as an investor, but as a professional, as a student, as someone who's going to take care of your family. I think it gets you into a position where you can make better decisions. You mentioned where where is the world going? And I actually want to shift gears slightly and, and take a more global view beyond deep tech. As you remember, as part of our LP roundtable with Chris and Beezer, the question that I had posed at the very beginning is describe venture capital in one word, and your answer was extraordinary. And I think the extraordinary can be both a bull case and there's a, probably a bear case on where we stand right now. So as a fun thought experiment, I'd love to for you to give me, and let's pull the thread of what extraordinary means in your eyes. Give us maybe your bear version of it, and then also the bull version, and how you are using those thoughts, maybe conflicting thoughts, to actually construct how you're investing today. Absolutely. And 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 you got it. I mean, this is this is why I chose this word, because although this word sounds like a positive word, it's extraordinary. Uh, if you look at the root of the word, it could mean anything but normality. And so this is exactly what you're alluding to. So it's very easy for me to, to build a bear case in anything because I'm a risk manager. So that's the easy part. And the bear case here is that we're looking, and I don't think you know this is going to surprise anyone, every single metric in the VC world right now is at a record high, right? Inflows, uh, returns, number of unicorns, number of exits, round size, everything is at its peak. And so there is this natural uh, feeling that there's nowhere to go but down. So the risks are real, even though every day you're proven wrong, right? Things get even more interesting, more exciting, more expensive, if you will. So the bear case here is that with that much capital coming in and so many decisions being taken uh, in a relatively short time and so many moving parts uh, happening now, with really important changes happening in the Web3 world or the metaverse or however, however you want to call it, which is basically the best use case for the blockchain that was finally found, right? It's not about the cryptocurrency, it's about the whole web. That's the best use case for the blockchain and this is what Web3 is going to be. And this is where we were with Web to back in the mid-1990s, right? People were figuring out, so why, what is this going to do for me, right? What is email? Why do I need a website? And, and I truly believe that, you know, like 20 years later, we're living the same basic questions about why do I need a token? Why do I need a, a, a blockchain? Why do I need to distribute my processing or my, uh, my databases? And I think we'll figure it out as we go. And I think this is a, a, a big, important part of it. But when you see a secular shift of that magnitude in the internet, 
and you see everything at an all-time high, I think there is a reasonable chance that you will have a disaster striking uh, the asset class, either a fund going bust, either a, a high-profile company being proven to be a fraud or being proven to be you know, misguiding their investors. And I think because of the hype around venture that has been built steadily and consistently over the past, I don't know, two to four years maybe, I think this is going to create headlines and I think this is going to scare off a lot of investors. But guess what? This is not the NASDAQ or the S&P or the New York Stock Exchange where you can just kind of dump your shares and, and, and be done with it. You'll see a huge loss over a couple of days, and, and but you have your money back with a loss. This is you're locked in for, for seven, for 10 years, for 12 years. And this is going to generate a lot of discomfort. And I think this is going to really shuffle the board. And to go back to our previous point, I think the well-established managers are going to be able to strengthen their position even further because these guys, they're smarter than that. They're going to be in a position where they're going to be able to point to the market and say, you see what happened? Aren't you glad you're working with us? Because in our portfolio, things are very much under control. So I think the bear case is like a very bad marketing, bad publicity, and the actual numbers of the economy catching up with you. Because you have to ask yourself, we're living in a world where inflation now is about 5%, right? And the T-bill, the 10-year T-bill, let's call it 1.5%. So for you to invest your money risk-free, you're losing 3.5% per annum. So there is definitely a chase for yield going on. And this is why, you know, the 12, the 12 last months for the NASDAQ, we're, I think, 35% up. The last 12 months for the S&P 500, 30% up. Well, you know, real estate, private equity, venture capital, everything is trending up because everybody's chasing more yield. And this is something that could come to a screeching halt. And this is the bear case that will overflow to venture. The bull case, of course, is you can assume that the world will continue to chase technology. And the case in point is COVID, right? In 2020, Except for, and you remember that vividly, that window in April and early May, when it felt like the world was going to come to an end, nobody raised, nobody was able to raise, everybody was really desperate, and it felt really bad for 45 days. And then people just said, you know what? It's fine. It's going to be okay. And then things just went ballistic from that point on. So if you look at the pandemic scenario where every single technology, in particular deep techno technologies, became more important and became part of the spotlight. And a lot of people now learned about deep tech due to the pandemic. The bull case is, okay, the world will continue to chase those specific efficiencies that the deep tech world will continue to produce. And so we are in a cycle of growth. We're in a cycle of uh, new technologies coming to fruition and, and having customers to test it and to use it that will sustain this this environment for, for a long term. And so I, I think what you've articulated is a very clear bull and bear case that I think we're both conflicted in terms of how to play in this type of market. Let's say for a hypothetical scenario that there's probably truth to both things. 
and that there is going to be some level of economic regression. You can't really sit out investing because of what you mentioned is that we're losing money if we have our all our money sitting in a checking account or under our mattress. And so when you think about asset bubbles, people invest through asset bubbles. There are certain areas that are more risky. But within venture capital, if you were to provide advice to a new LP, a family office, or something, someone similar that is looking to start investing actively in the venture class, where do you find the best opportunities where somebody can mitigate some of the risk of the bear case, but also capture the upside in the most optimal way for the bull case? Although everybody loves the story of the specific startup they invested in and made 100x on their money, I think this is definitely not where you should start. And oddly enough, this is where most of the, the folks out there start. They try their hand at doing direct investments into specific companies. And this is, statistically speaking, this is not going to work. This is one of the many cognitive biases that that really get in the way of a cleared-eyed investment where you can ultimately try to make sure that you're building the right blocks for your portfolio. So the first advice would be try to always ask yourself, why would I be a good investor for this company? Because there's no shortage of capital, of opportunities, and of investors. So this is actually, uh, funny enough, this is this was the core reason why I decided to build Grids as a blended portfolio of funds and directs, because I thought, I think there are folks out there, experts on life sciences and robotics and energy and so on and so forth, that will be able to attract the early stage entrepreneurs much better than me. So I should delegate to those folks this part of my job, which is make sure you're attracting the very best founders at the very earliest stage. So that would be my suggestion, my first suggestion. The second thing would be it's very, very hard to predict the future. And even though there are a few trends for the next three to five years that seem very clear, like airspace, climate tech, NLP, life sciences in general, there are many trends that are playing out and are, will continue to play out. I think you want to spread your bets. So the reason why I sleep relatively well at night, not all that well, but relatively well at night, uh, even with that bear case hanging over our heads, it's because I've designed grids to live under a bear case environment. This is by design because I'm a risk manager. And when I, funny enough, when I sell our products, when I raise our products, my first interaction with the prospects is, listen, if you're looking for 10 or 20X, I'm not gonna deliver that for you, right? But if you're looking for a healthy three to five X with very limited downside, and exposure to some of the best names in the industry and access to some direct investments, then I think we have a conversation to have because this is ultimately our model. So if you're a family office, if you are building a venture portfolio, you want to 
you know, stick to your knitting. You want to start with funds and not directs, and you don't want to concentrate into one single sector. You want to try your hand at at least three or four sectors to make sure that you are covered and diversified. You're not going to make as much money as you would if you hit the nail on the head, but if things go south, I think you're going to be in a good position. It's a great piece of advice, and it certainly does seem that over the last few years, people have inclined more toward direct investing. And it's easy to understand. It's, it's certainly closer to the asset. It's more exciting. And given the up and to the right nature of the economic cycle we've had for really the majority of the last 13 years, it is easy for people to fall into the trap of Dunning-Kruger and overestimate their abilities to do direct deals versus relying on a fund manager. But just based on what I've seen and certainly what you've validated here, it does seem wise to start off with maybe a fund of funds or a fund as part of the learning journey before moving to directs. You're 100% right. And, and funny enough, while part of my due diligence process uh, back in the day when I did when I allocated into other asset classes was to make sure where each one of the aspiring portfolio managers were sitting during the 1997 uh, Asian crisis, uh, financial market crisis, 1998 Russia crisis, uh, the 1999 Brazilian real devaluation crisis. I mean, every single uh, portfolio manager has to have had a big stress event under their belt because, as you said, theoretically, you think you know how you're going to behave. Theoretically, you think you you have a good idea of how bad things can turn. But, you know, for folks that lived through the 2008 crisis, you know, the Lehman uh, uh, bankruptcy and all the mortgage crisis, I think these are very sobering events where you are taught humility. And, and again, because I've been doing this for so many years, I have all those stress scenarios as scars that I carry with me and that help me to be conservative uh, in a way that I feel is not detrimental to my LP's returns, but will ultimately provide them with a with a healthy cushion if a disaster should occur. Well, you know, you speak about scars. I feel like I have scars. I started my career in venture capital lending to software companies in 99. And then I moved to the private funds group and started focusing on venture funds in 2008. So I've seen what happens when things are not up and to the right. And I think the challenge for people like us, when we're so used to underwriting to risk and have been through these cycles, is not being so sullied to the point where you're not looking at what's ahead of us and understanding that there is upside that sometimes is harder to underwrite to, and you just need to figure out the right you know, risk return balance. And so I think these are all great comments. I want to end with the uh, the final question I have. Given all these experiences you've you've been through and the people you've worked with, what's the best career advice you've ever received? And what exactly has it meant in terms of defining how you do things today? During my uh, college years, uh, in my uh, second to last year in in, in undergrad school. I was a trainee at IBM. This is 1993, I think, or 1994. And I was, you know, at the very end of my internship, if you will. And uh, my boss at the time, uh, he called me to his office and he said, listen, you are 
uh, a couple of weeks away from you know ending your, your your contract here, we would like to offer you a permanent position here, and I can personally tell you that I will be uh, mentoring you towards a very senior position in the company over the next uh, two to five years. Uh, you've made an excellent impression, yada, 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 a, a lot of great, great comments. And and at the time, I was already certain that I wanted to do a, a graduate school, right? So it was it had absolutely nothing to do with IBM. It had to do with my personal path. I wanted to be at least a master's, if not a PhD. I thought at the time that I was going to go all the way. So I told him, I politely declined. I said, listen, I really appreciate the invitation. I know what that means and I'm flattered, but you know, I made up my mind. I'm already enrolled to do a, a, a master's. It's going to take a couple of years at least. Then we can talk, right? To his credit, about uh, 18 months later, we kept in touch and I was thinking about doing a doctorate and I was fighting you know, a lot of ideas between doing a doctorate, working this, that, and the other. And we had lunch and this is where, where I got the advice that they carry with me. He told me, listen, there are quite a number of very skilled technical people in the world and there are quite a number of great salespeople in the world. But the intersection of those skills is a ridiculously small number. And you sit in that intersection. You are very technical, but you're very, very good at sales. You're easy to talk to. You are someone that people relate to. So whatever you do, if you're going to do a PhD, if you're going to work, if you're going to, I don't care. This is the skill that you have to leverage. This is how you win. And then I took that with me and I couple that with the optimal allocation uh, uh, thesis that I have, that people are happier when they're optimally allocated. And I felt that I had to try to do something where I could try to join the best of both worlds. So my career advice is take your strengths and try to take not one of them, but try to see what's the set of strengths that you have around yourself and see what's the intersection of all those strengths, because this is probably the optimal allocation for you and for a career. This is probably where you're going to be most successful. That doesn't mean you're going to be the happiest. That's another story. And if you're not happiest there, you should totally avoid this career path because you need to be happy first and foremost. But what I've learned over time is that when you're good at something, you're almost naturally happy at doing it. It's very rare you see someone who's really great at something and they say, yeah, but I'm miserable when I do it. I know I'm great, but I hate it. That's not usual. It happens, but it's not usual. So that would be my, my career advice, if I may. I, I love that piece of advice, and it does speak to this thing that we used to talk in the, about in the Coffin Fellows around Zone of Genius, where passion meets your acumen, where you get the, uh, the best outcomes for you from a career perspective. Guy, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Based on user feedback, we need to do a part two of the LP Roundtable in early 2022. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again for having me, Samir. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Guy. To learn more about investing in the deep tech revolution, Grids Capital, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. 
Adventure Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.